Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's Wednesday, the 17th of March. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. On tonight's show, Anthony Leeming, CEO of Sun International, on how the iconic South African hospitality and gaming group has been surviving the COVID-19 crisis. Pierre van der Hoven of Silverleaf Investments on the money-making opportunities in cannabis. Also joining us on the show today is Andrew Whitfield, the DA's Shadow Minister of Police on the IT chaos in the South African Police Service, which has derailed investigations into crimes like rape and murder. And Bond industry legend Bill Gross on how he has been positioning his investments in U.S. markets. First, my business colleague, Melanie Nathan, has the business news headlines. Nedbank has reported a drop in revenue for the year ended in December and a loss in headline earnings of almost 60%. The lender saw a slight increase in net asset value and declared a preference share dividend. It says it expects to resume dividend payments this year. The company opted to retain capital for both potential growth opportunities but also for potential further risks in the virus, Chief Executive Officer Mike Brown said in an interview with Bloomberg TV. If the backdrop turns more sour, we always retain the opportunity to return the capital to shareholders at a later stage, he said. The RMI Group says it is satisfied with its performance in the six months ended in December. The group achieved 11% growth in consolidated normalized earnings to 2 billion rand, driven mainly by a 23% increase in normalized earnings by outsurance. On the other end of the spectrum, Momentum Metropolitan's normalized earnings decreased by 43%. RMI declared an interim cash dividend. Curro Holdings says learner numbers increased by 6% in the full year ended in December. Revenue grew to just over 3 billion rand, while headline earnings per share dropped by nearly 40%. ShopRite CEO Peter Engelbrecht says South Africa's private sector must be allowed to secure vaccines on their own to speed up the slow rollout of COVID-19 shots. ShopRite, which employs over 140,000 people, would certainly purchase for our employees to get those frontline workers vaccinated as quickly as possible, he told Bloomberg. There are 25 million customers through our stores every month, so one can understand how critical it is for our people to be vaccinated. Sotheby's, a world-renowned auction house, has said it is exploring ways for art collectors to pay for digital and physical artworks with cryptocurrencies. According to the Wall Street Journal, this comes after rival auction house Christie's sold a digital collage to an investor who paid $69 million in digital currency. Subscribe to BizNews Premium for full access to the Wall Street Journal. I'm Melanie Nathan and that was your BizNews Flash Briefing. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the stock markets for BizNews throughout the day. Justin, what were the main developments today on the JSE and other markets? The JSE All Share Index was down to 66,500. Some of the day's highlights include Sabanya Stillwater down 5% to 67 rand a share on the back of weaker commodity prices. Discovery was down more than 5 rand to 135 rand a share. British American Tobacco was up 13 rand to 560 rand a share. And NASPA spin-off Process was down again, falling by 40 rand to 1,640 rand a share. 
In the currency markets, the rand was flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 86 cents against the dollar, 20 rand and 66 cents against the pound, and 17 rand 70 cents against the euro. Gold is flat at 1,733 cents an ounce. The premier cryptocurrency is flat at 820,000 rand per Bitcoin, and Brent crude was slightly weaker, falling to $68 a barrel. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. Charles Boerter is a CFA charter holder, which means he is a chartered financial analyst. He examines stocks for the business community with a view to assessing their intrinsic value and whether a share price matches up to the intrinsic value. Charles, today we're looking at education company Curro, which released results. What does your number crunching tell us about Curro's intrinsic value? Jackie, my numbers tell me that the intrinsic value is only seven rand sixteen. Um, at the current share price is ten rand sixty four, which means that I think uh, Kiro is thirty three percent overvalued. Which what makes Kiro very difficult to value is that it's like a hotel and a what's. Uh, pharmacy or medicine medicine place it has large fixed costs and school utilization is very important to them so let's say the 178 schools they have if the schools only filled 50 percent then they don't make money they lose a lot of money if the schools let's say 60 percent full they make a lot of money now these are just uh, ex- exam- uh, examples of figures these are not the actual figures so if they, if they get pupils to come into the school and they reach a certain level, then the school will make a lot of money. Now, the problem is Kira has always been predicated, the investment case for, for Kira has always been predicated on them filling up their schools. But the problem is that this hasn't happened. So for the last 10 years, some of the schools they've bought 10 years ago are at the same capacity utilization rates they are, you know, today. Uh, so... Yeah, that is why I think one of the reasons Kiro is not at the 60 rand it was a couple of years back is this. Charles, in their announcement, they mentioned that their revenue had increased by about 5% and they'd increased their number of learners by about 6%, but their headline earnings decreased by more than 30%. How do you factor these kinds of figures into your assessment of the company's value? Yeah, this is this is exactly what makes uh, valuing a company like Kira very difficult because you've got because of this uh, fixed cost base, you've got something called operating leverage, which means that if revenue increases by a certain percentage, the operating profits increases more, um, and the same. You know, if it decreases, it decreases by more, and we see this um, in the headline numbers at the bottom. Uh, they had uh, losses as well through some of impairments of the uh, some of the schools that aren't living up to their promise, and uh, we should see this coming through in the next few years as they overpaid for schools about five, six, seven years ago, and each year they are impairing these schools. So we should see that coming through on the financial statements. But what's more important is the actual cash these businesses generate, and it's getting better. That is getting better, but it's not rising at the pace you would expect uh, for a company trading at this PE. Um, 
So for, finally, for new investors, should they be buying the share, selling it? If they've got I the share, should so. they hold? Intrinsic, intrinsic value on my calculations, as I said, seven and 16. So it's 33% overvalued. But I must say this, for this specific company, the, the inputs, the assumptions you make, it's very, very sensitive. So for instance, if I add 1% more growth to their numbers, I'm almost at nine rand something, which is very close to the 10 rand 64. So this is a, this is not a, it's a dangerous proposition, this. And I think if you look at the other education players in the sector, I think Abitech is, is doing a better job than Kira. Um, because Kira also had a rights issue uh, this year, which is, which is not great. I mean, if you continually raising money from shareholders, you're diluting current shareholders. And the dilution of last year's um, share issue isn't even in the price. If the, if the, or isn't even in the headline earnings per share calculation. So what I mean by that is if all the shares, if the, if the headline earnings are divided by the total number of shares and not just the weight of every number of shares, you actually, the earnings are down even further than the 40% we saw. They only made about 30 cents a share, which puts them on a 35p. That was Charles Boerter of BizNews bringing us up to speed on what he thinks about the Curro share price. Iconic South African gaming and hospitality group Sun International has been smacked hard by COVID-19 containment measures. This week it reported a loss of more than 1 billion rand for 2020. Sun International, like other companies in the hospitality sector, was forced to shut operations for more than three months last year and was also hit by ongoing restrictions like bans on domestic and international travel, alcohol and limits on the number of people allowed to gather in one place. In its report on its results this week, Sun International set out some of the measures it took to respond to the pandemic, including a 60% reduction in payroll costs, accelerating the disposal of non-core assets, and the successful conclusion of a 1.2 billion rand rights offer. Earlier, I spoke to Sun International CEO Anthony Leeming about what the group is doing to survive COVID-19 containment rules that have shattered the global tourism sector. Take a listen. Yeah, I think, look, we, we're quite lucky in a sense that we've got quite a big casino component in gaming. Uh, it's still the largest part of our business. We have a fairly big hotel um, business, but the, the main is gaming. So the gaming side has actually recovered not too not too badly and it's proved quite resilient, um, particularly on the LPM side. And the casino is getting up towards, you know, 75 to 80% of prior years. And on that and with cost savings, we're making pretty good cash flow. On the hotel side, the place like Sun City um, is the, very dependent at the moment on local leisure because the other uh, segments of its business are, are sort of non-existent. So we really are dependent very much on leisure travel, um, using our gaming gaming, le- gaming leisure as well. We have a lot of gaming clients going to our properties at the moment um, because, yeah, international business, mice, is just absolutely non-existent. What do you think is going to happen over the next year or so? We see so many problems with vaccine rollout globally and in South Africa. How are you going to cope for the next 12 months to 18 months? Yeah, look, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a time of, I guess, treading water. You know, in November last year, we were kind of, you had the feel that uh, we might have a resurgence in international travel sort of January, February, March, um, and that's all just moved out drastically. Uh, so right now we don't see there lot of, been a lot of demand. Obviously, international is going to be uh, very low. Uh, we business travel is going to be down. Um, you know, business is still not in the office. 
and then uh, your your meetings are going to be reserved for very small meetings, and then only recovery next year. So the focus is very much on on leisure, local leisure, um, reducing costs, and and trying to stimulate some midweek leisure demand, particularly at a place like Sun City. Uh, So pricing for consumers is going to be great, and we're going to just have to sweat it out. How many jobs have you lost over the last year? Uh, about 2,300. And how many people do you employ altogether? Uh, at the moment, about 7,000. Do you think you're going to be able to hang on to most of those people as you weather the storm? Yeah, look, what we've got at the moment, uh, we've got reduced hours at the moment in, in place. So certain people are on layoff and work in reduced hours. And we're guaranteeing them you know, a certain number of hours, but not full full time. So at our, at our bigger properties with the restructure and with natural attrition, we, we kind of, um, you know, at the casino side and the gaming side, we've most people are pretty much active um, and not quite at full capacity, but working a reasonable number of hours. Whereas at the resort side, the, especially the meetings and the conference people, we created a new pool out of the retrench. We kept 300 on a uh, sort of only uh, as need basis. So they don't have any guaranteed hours. So at the moment, we're managing to, we're not really using anyone. And then we're trying to, where we do have vacancies, we use those people first. So it really is about carefully managing your staff, keeping hours down, um, and on that basis. So we close, we, we, for example, at Sunset, we closed the Cascades during the midweek and opened up on the weekend where there is a lot of demand. You said also that you've used this period to reflect on some of your operational practices, systems, uh, marketing, and guest experience. What have you decided to change regardless of what happens with the COVID-19 pandemic rollout? Yeah, well, I think the, 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 big, the biggest thing we've changed is we're going to be we're busy starting the implementation of a new casino management system. We've partnered with GHA, which is Global Hotel Alliance, to, for as a loyalty program for our hotel guests. We're looking at a, a new booking engine, which we actually selected, and we're busy on the implementation side. We've had a in, uh, I suppose, in-house engine, and I think we don't have the the teams that these sort of um, white label these guys that do it and have extensive teams. So we believe that's going to enhance the guest uh, booking experience. We looked at very hard at our marketing and communication, and you know, found uh, where we were really wasting effort and not really as direct and as not really well communicate not good communication. So we improved a lot of that. Um, and we spent a lot of time with our marketing teams, with our creative uh, team um, to get alignment and to drive it forward. So communication, PR, we aligned all the PR around the group with one company. Um, and I think that's making a big, big difference at the moment as well. So PR marketing, the whole effort has been reviewed and, and realigned. I mean, this must be a very stressful time for you and for many hotel operators and people in the leisure industry. Do you stay awake at night worrying about the future? Yeah, look, uh, you know, we've moved from obviously, I think if you go back to the lockdown, this sort of was a temporary thing and then became a three month and then became six. um, And now it's become a sort of probably a two year with vaccine rollouts and shifts in demand and, and all that. So what's going to happen? So we've, I think we've weathered the worst. We kind of know what to expect, um, I think, in the next year. So we've we've reached the position where I hate to say I'm optimistic, but I am a little optimistic that we can see in maybe a year's time, despite the, all the problems with vaccine rollouts, I guess the vaccines are going to continue to be developed and, and, and refined and better vaccines will continue to come out. So I think ultimately 
the world will have to get act together, um, and uh, certain places will be quicker than others. But as we get success stories, I think it'll roll out. What it has been is the delay and the, the time to recovery is a little bit longer. So I'm sort of optimistic meetings, conferencing will come back quite strongly into the future, and maybe it's only next year. Uh, people will need to get together and companies will need to meet. So we've got a very tough year ahead of us the way we see it, but we do see that the future is, is not going to be all doom and gloom. Uh, it's just that it's just another year. So I do think we're over the worst lockdowns. I don't think will happen again. It didn't work very well. Yes, you might have more restrictions, um, curfews and those things when there's a, a third wave in South Africa here. But ultimately, I think we've learned better to cope with the difficulties that we faced in the past. And therefore, now it's a matter of time, um, and hopefully uh, countries will, will find a way to work together and vaccines will improve. You said that you've disposed of your interests in Sun Dreams in Latin America. What are your international operations looking like now? Very small. We're really primarily focused on South Africa at the moment. I think, you know, I, I like to push. We need to start importing more revenue into South Africa. We have the products um, both on the hotel, leisure, and the gaming side. So a big focus of ours is rather going to be using our products and leveraging them up uh, by bringing more income in as opposed to sort of going outside. Um, you know, casino space is moving, um, so we have very good assets that are very good cashier assets, but there's a lot of movement on the uh, online space where we need to be more active um, and pushing. So we have a good online business at the moment, and we're going to push more into that direction than trying to, you know, uh, have a land grab and bigger land casinos, um, which I think, you know, worldwide, we're not big enough for the Macau's and the, the U.S. market, I guess. But on the online space, it's a little bit easier and we have quite a, a good brand, good business at the moment in that space. And we need to leverage that up more. So, yeah, we, we're comfortable that we're primarily South African based, but I do think we can bring international business into the country with our products that we do have. Do you have any capacity to take on more assets where you see that there are some opportunities now? Because there are lots of businesses that are in terrible trouble, but maybe bargains that you could snap up. Yeah, look, I mean, I think we still, we still, I won't say we financially stretch. We've got a pretty resilient, strong balance sheet now. Our cash flows are becoming a little bit more certain under difficult trading conditions. So we, we should have the comfort of banks. Have we got a lot of capacity to, to, to buy assets? No. Are we opportunistically going to look at some if they really are great deals? Uh, we would definitely have a look and, and, and see. But it really, as you say, it's going to have to be desperate sellers um, and we need to make sure it leverages quite a lot of value for our shareholders. We, we kind of need a lot of the government and provincial support and, and particularly like a place like Sun City to really take it to the next level. So we are busy trying to engage and work with, with government. Um, but holistically, we're not pushing a lot of money. There's a refurb of the palace planned. Uh, it's desperate. If we want to target international, we need to do that refurb. It's just timing now and cash flow dependent. That's a tricky issue for many hoteliers because you need to keep updating, upgrading. People expect everything to look much better than they'd get at home. How are you managing the money that you need to put into these refurbishments in light of what they're actually worth and how much cash flow they'll generate? Look, an immense amount of work has gone into Sun City over the last year and particularly in lockdown where we really looked hard at how we operate, how we manage um, and we had started the, the Cascades refurb, which we have completed. Um, we, you know, it wasn't a, a massive refurb, but the Cascades really is in good shape. So the, the real priority projects looking forward and, and with our goal of targeting internationals and really getting that international market back to Sun City, we have to spend and invest in the palace. 
Uh, unfortunately, it is a matter of timing. We, you know, if, if things had returned a bit more to normal now at the start of this year, we probably would have pushed a bit harder the project. Likely going to be pushed a year out, um, maybe start the end of this year, and, and really get the palace to the level that internationals uh, expect. And that way, it's not a matter of up in occupancy. Occupancy of the palace is okay, but it's actually getting the experience right. So it's not just about the, the physical product, which we do have to invest in the palace. We acknowledge um, we've already prepared a mock-up room, which is basically signed off and honestly looks fantastic. And I think will be well-received. But the other key element is, is focusing on our employees and staff. And that's probably one of the biggest um, priorities we've pushed down to all our general managers. Because if the staff aren't happy and the staff aren't taken care of, and in this environment, they've been through a lot lower salaries um, you know, it's still even now lower working hours, a very, very difficult period for them. So looking after them will hopefully help to look after the customer. Um, you know, I was recently up at Sun City and I had a few staff talking to me and out of their, you know, out of their mouth, they were saying, look, we don't start uh, getting our act together. We're going to find that the guests aren't going to keep coming back and then we're not going to have jobs. So I think reality dawned on a lot of our employees. And I, I think it's critical that, you know, we support them and then they can support our guests. So, the physical product is one thing, but the experience is, is a lot more than the physical product. So we will invest in the physical products in the future, but we certainly invest in a lot of mountain our employees and, and uh, you know, working together with them and engaging uh, with our employees. So you're finding that your employees are actually uh, doing more to support the business? I think absolutely. I think the employees, are, you know, when you have you go through the phases of COVID, um, you know, we took a very – difficult decision decision right up front to cut salaries to 40% when we had the lockdown. Um, and I think we had a lot of frustration and disappointment for our employees, probably very cross with us um, and upset. But as that sort of lockdown period went on for longer, and then when we came back to the office and go back to work and, you know, your business levels were very low in July last year and slowly picked up and then seen what the effects of a second wave have done to the business have seen how low occupancies, how we go from uh, you know pretty busy weekends to literally nothing in the midweek at a place like Sun City and, and other areas. I think our employees have realized the company is doing as much as we can for them. Um, and we really have gone out of way and we really are trying to help. And I think key is communication, honesty, and we've spent a lot of time. And I think uh, I won't say that it's turned because people, it's very difficult for our employees, but I do think they acknowledge and understand the difficulties the company's in. Um, and I think they acknowledge their role in, in the future. So well, I'd like to believe we've got quite an engaged um, employee base. But having said that, you know, it's still going to require a lot of effort from management to, to really put the, put the work in to recognize our staff, recognize our employees that are going the extra mile. Um, and in that way, we will definitely have a better, you know, en- engaged workforce, which will have a better customer experience at the end of the day. And Anthony, did you learn any lessons at business school in your life that equipped you for this kind of challenge? And nothing. What I did learn is how important. I mean, I learned this. Um, I think through the through the pandemic, in in terms of lockdown and how the importance of communication um, and engaging with your employees. It's probably a lesson I learned uh, the hardest because I don't think I was probably the best communicator before. But having to really open up and you know share your feelings and share uh, the, the challenges we facing, the challenges they facing, and being open and transparent, and the, the effect that has on employees is, is critical. And I think that's a key lesson for, that I've learned is that uh, you need to engage more and more. Uh, people need to hear you and they need to, to, to understand your challenges, um, which helps them deal with theirs. So I think communication was probably the most important thing through COVID that anybody uh, could have learned or done. 
if you didn't communicate with your staff, I think uh, you're going you're gonna to pay the, the, the price down the line. That was Sun International CEO Anthony Leeming speaking to me, Jackie Cameron of Biz News, about plans to get through this tough period in the group's history. It's a warm welcome now to Pierre van der Hoven, joint CEO of Silverleaf Investments, who joins us on the line to share his insights on the cannabis industry and possible opportunities for aspirant entrepreneurs. Pierre, for our international listeners, before we get into the details of what Silverleaf Investments does, can you just briefly sketch out what the legal situation is with cannabis in South Africa? Is it legal to use it for recreational and medicinal purposes? Um, yeah, there's, it's a complicated answer. Uh, we're ahead of the world in terms of our constitutional court hearing in that it's 100% legal to use cannabis for private use but no trade. So in that sense, we have a liber- quite a liberal legal framework. Um, we have a secondary framework where you can cultivate cannabis for medicinal purposes under license from SAPRA, from the Department of Health. Um, we can also have a legal framework for products where you can sell CBD products in the retail environments, but they can't con- include uh, any THC. So that's kind of a loose summary of where we are. Um, and the only place where the legal situation is grey is we're waiting for regulations for the legal cultivation of hemp, which is defined as low THC cannabis plants with low THC levels. So does this mean in South Africa you're currently allowed to grow cannabis for hemp, but you can't grow it for the recreational aspects of of the uh, plant? Um, no, the other way around. You can grow cannabis for private use. That's legal. But there are limits on that, and we're waiting for clarity. You can grow hemp for medicinal use only if you have a license, and you can't grow hemp for hemp. I mean, you can't grow cannabis for industrial use yet, but that legislation is coming, and it should be up before the end of the month, we hope. And what is this industry worth to South Africa? Have you got any indication of how many uh, participants are ready to start doing things legally? Yeah, the, the, the one thing we've, we suffer from in South Africa, because it's been an illicit industry or a very new industry, we have very limited information, but it's, it's, it's valued at many billions of rand. Uh, the global industry is worth $100 billion, so it's a massive industry, and currently it's the fastest-growing industry in the world. Uh, politically, um, it's, it's, there's lots of legalization going on. The Biden administration has a whole different view about cannabis, and we're seeing a lot of legalization going on in, uh, in various states, although it's still illegal at a federal level. And this week we had the biggest market in the world, which declared that cannabis uh, will be legalized in Mexico. So America's now got a legal country to their south and a legal country to the north, which is Canada. So that's going to drive the industry, and the knock-on effect for South Africa will be uh, phenomenal. Um, we see it as a Sorry, bit of a social... How, how things will benefit South Africa if, if the uh, people in the U.S., Embrace the cannabis yeah, industry. Okay. Haven't so, they got a so, lot of their own production there, and Mexico is well known for its production of various types of drugs. Yeah, um, but South Africa is what is known as is already supplying uh, about a third of the illicit market. So we're known as a cultivation hub. Some of the top 
genetics come from South Africa, Southern Africa, including Lesotho and other countries. So South Africa has always been identified as a very um, force to be reckoned with in terms of cult- cultivation. Um, and when it's legalized, it'll, it, it will expand. We've got the great climate, we've got great soil, we've got great genetics. Um, so that's an opportunity for job creation um, and for rural economic development, which is very important to our country right now. Just playing devil's advocate, isn't there a, a thriving industry anyway, regardless of whether it's legal or not? What will change once it becomes legalized? Well, we'll be able to export. Um, we'll be able we'll to beneficiate. Yeah, we'll be able to beneficiate. We'll be able to create products, be they uh, industrial hemp products, fiber, clothing, textiles, pulp, biofuels, and medicinal products uh, in terms of, you know, creating medicines or active pharmaceutical ingredients. So it will unlock the industry. Um, and, yes, there is an illicit industry, but it's quite an exploitative one. It's very poor farmers who paid very little for what they produce, and then it disappears into this sort of hole, and it pops up in Amsterdam and places around the world, and it doesn't really help South Africa much. So the formal or legal operation of a regulated industry will definitely benefit our country. Pierre, tell us what Silverleaf Investments does. Yeah, so we've, we set up as, a, as an investment vehicle for investors wanting to get into cannabis. Um, so there's a couple of corporate governance guys and there's a couple of us from the industry itself. And what we saw was there are a lot of people interested in cannabis for various reasons. Um, they want to invest, but there was no credible vehicle for them to invest through. Um, a lot of them don't want to make investment decisions in the industry that they don't understand. Uh, and there are legal risks, and not everybody understands the legal situation. So we prov- we set up a 12J fund. Uh, we're going to vol- morph into a full-blown venture capital company, and we provide a credible, professionally managed, well-regulated structure for investors to enter into the, in- into the industry. So how much have you got in funding and, and where is it being diverted right now? Have you, have you actually got – tell us a bit more about the underlying investments. Okay. We, we're currently um, looking at a whole lot of investments across the value chain. So very, very, very quickly, it's you cultivate, you process, you manufacture, you distribute retail brands. So we're looking at all aspects of that. So cultivation is a very interesting aspect now as, as the licenses are issued. Uh, when the hemp permits are issued, that will provide a huge boost from cultivation. Then you've got a process. So you either extract the, the oils um, or you process the hemp into fiber. So there's, an, there's a whole investment opportunity. Um, then you've got to take that base raw material and create brands and products. Um, so there's an area investment there. So we're looking across the value chain. We're trying to find the leading South African companies in their vertical um, and we believe if we get in early and we incubate and secure stakes in the, the best of breed in their vertical, that within a year the legal uh, situation in America will uh, change and investment money will flood in here and we'll be in a very b- good position to realize um, excellent returns. So you're a bit like a holding company of uh, smaller companies or enterprises uh, in the cannabis sector? Yeah, yeah, we like we we are fun. So we we collect money and then we spend it on 
a whole host of investments which we call qualifying companies. So, yeah, eventually, we, in a way, we're an investment holding company in cannabis and hemp. Yeah. And what kinds of returns are you offering your investors? Uh, in our prospectus, we're talking about 20% uh, RRs. Um, we, that's kind of a conservative number. Um, conservative. Yeah, well, we don't want to overpromise in a prospectus. We'll rather deliver the returns and then start talking about them. Uh, so we're very positive internally, but we're not going to make outrageous returns. If you look at the investment proposals, a lot of the cannabis companies' evaluations are high. It's highly profitable. It's going through phenomenal growth. So we feel we're getting, we'll get better than normal returns. Um, with a possibility of getting shoot the lights out returns because it's because of the nature of the industry. And Pia, your company started life as a 12J private equity company, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And those come to an end at the end of June. Is that why you're morphing into a bigger operation or a different entity? Yeah, but that, that's a part. part the, that's partly the reason uh, we didn't expect the 12J structure to be. Uh, the sunset clause to be activated, but uh, we knew there was a possibility. But we've always we wanted to start with the corporate governance and getting the vehicle right, establishing the brand. Uh, the tax deduction just gave a boost to the returns. Um, but in the bigger scheme of things, 12J is just really not big enough for the industry. You know, we limited to invest um, in companies that have a valuation of up to 50 million. Uh, and if you see the, the valuations on the Canadian companies, they, they, you know, they're north of a billion dollars, some of them. So we always intended to, to morph into a proper full-blown venture capital company. So how much money do you have invested in your company now that you're in turn going to invest in all these businesses? Um, yeah, I, I, I can't give you that number. Um, we launched two weeks before the end of February, so... Um, we haven't got vast amounts of money, but we did have a successful launch in terms of getting everything in place. Um, and our real target is to set um, 50 billion by the 30th of June. That's that's where we're heading. We're and on the way there. How many investors have you got so far? Sure, I think about. Yeah, um, I think, but between 20 and 30. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm not very well prepared on that one. About don't 20 worry, or 30, somewhere worry. between that. Yeah. And, and you're hoping to get to 50 million. What's the minimum investment sum for people before we close off here if, if they're interested in investing in what looks like a, a booming cannabis industry? Yeah, our, our prospectus to the 20th of June said 50,000 Rand because we, uh, we want to provide an opportunity mainly for young people to enter it. So we try to keep that level low at 50, but when we reissue our prospectus, it's going to go up to about 100,000. So we want to keep the barrier to entry low. We want the small retailer investor kind of person to have a shot at it. Um, when we do a VC, then we'll move up to minimum a million, but at this point, we're trying to keep the barrier to entry pretty low. And just for clarity, the 12J companies enable you to deduct whatever you invest in the 12J company off your tax so you have a tax yeah, deduction. So any any money that was invested before the 28th of February, you get the full tax deduction against your taxable income. If you're in the maximum bracket, that's 45% return immediately. If you invest between 
Now, in the 30th of June, you can do that same deduction in the 2022 tax year. Um, and then thereafter, it won't be allowed. You've been listening to Pierre van der Hoven, joint CEO of Silverleaf Investments, which has a, an opportunity for you to invest in the cannabis industry and deduct your investment off your tax bill. But time is running out. Andrew Whitfield is Shadow Minister of Police and a member of the National Assembly for the Democratic Alliance. He is has been fighting against Tina Jumat Peterson, who has been at the centre of a scandal involving the police services computer technology. Take a listen. Yeah, sure. I mean, the main reason why we've now elevated this issue uh, as a matter of national importance is because we don't believe that the committee has been able to deal uh, with the issue um, expeditiously. We've been raising these issues in the committee since 2019. We've been asking the tough questions. We've been calling for the SAP's forensic division to come and report transparently and comprehensively. Uh, and um, we feel that uh, we've been messed around quite uh, significantly. And the reason for the call for the national uh, debate of national importance is really to lift the issue out of the committee and into the Chamber of Parliament so that all political parties can be appraised of the real crisis that exists within the SAP's forensic division. Um, it is a complex issue. But to, to, to summarize, there are really two major issues that are causing chaos at the moment. Uh, the one relates to a company called Forensic Data Analysis, which is uh, responsible for keeping the systems running uh, for track and trace capabilities to monitor um, evidence and so that the criminal justice system can, at any given moment, any uh, element or aspect of that value chain can identify where their evidence is in the system. Uh, and then the other uh, issue is related to the lack of renewal of expired contracts for the maintenance of consumables in our laboratories, which are critical for the processing of DNA case exhibits, which is now ground to a complete halt. And um, two weeks ago, it was 172,000, the backlog. And um, we are now uh, believe that it's over 220,000 as of the 10th of March. So we really do have a crisis. And we felt that um, it hasn't really captured the public imagination in a way that uh, that we've uh, that we would hope it would. It's quite an extraordinary state of affairs. I mean, you talk care about a backlog of two hundred thousand case exhibits. Does this actually mean there aren't any cases that are going ahead now in any meaningful way in the courts? Well, I mean, I can't speak for the court end of the criminal justice system, but, I, I, you know, what, what we do know is that in January and February this year, not one single DNA case exhibit was processed through our laboratories because contracts have not been renewed or entered into uh, for the maintenance of highly sensitive equipment, for the purchase of consumables and reagent chemicals required to process the uh, DNA uh, samples. And so that gives you an indication of the extent of the crisis. And then the backlog of over 2,000 exhibits, to me, indicates that this is an accumulated backlog of, you know, at least uh, a, a year or perhaps even more of outstanding case exhibits which have not found their way to be processed and then ultimately, as you say, end up in the hands of the prosecutors in order to prosecute violent criminals. And what we're now hearing is that many of these suspected criminals who have been arrested 
are being released because you can't simply hold them indefinitely. And if the evidence is not forthcoming, magistrates, judges, they need to release these people on bail in order for them to, you know, obviously for their rights to be protected. But the rights of the victims are being undermined uh, because of the SAPS Forensics Division's inability to um, to deal with the issues relating to DNA uh, case exhibits. This company at the centre of this problem, Forensic Data Analysis, are they trying to help the system or are they part of the network of the corrupt and the captured? You know, I, I believe that this is a real classic case of state capture and um, we certainly are looking into it, um, you know, at great detail. And we need to go back 10 years or more uh, when forensic data analysis, um, you know, got the contracts that they are now fighting for at the moment. Um, the issue uh, was really brought to light in 2017 when um, the Standing Committee on Public Accounts actually investigated the matter and called SAPS and the company to come and report to Parliament where the Standing Committee on Public Accounts actually recommended that SAPS terminate their relationship with this uh, company on the basis of the suspicion of corruption, uh, bribery or even money laundering. And... Um, you know, the, the gentleman, one of the directors of the company uh, is a former police officer, and uh, we believe that this relationship is not, it's obviously not a healthy one. Uh, and I suspect that there's a lot more political uh, corruption involved in, um, you know, keeping that contract and basically giving one company a monopoly over a critical um, link in the criminal justice system chain, uh, which um, is certainly not healthy for a competitive um, a competitive environment for other companies to enter into that space. So this company has now got that monopoly, and um, there's a standoff in the courts between SAPS and the company. Uh, the minister has apparently interfered on a number of occasions, uh, and now we hear that the committee chairperson, according to Mr. O'Sullivan, uh, is uh, potentially implicated, which, which really draws the ANC right into the center of this mess. It sounds like Minister of Police Becky Selle is actually trying to stop the deal from going ahead with this corrupt entity, Forensic Data Analysis. Is that a, a correct understanding? So I do understand that that is the case. He, he has uh, prevented SAPS from re-entering uh, into the contract with the, uh, with the company in question. I'm not sure that's entirely a bad thing. I don't know what his motives are, however, and I suspect that his motives are perhaps, uh, perhaps not entirely pure, uh, and that is one element of this entire saga that we are uh, investigating as quickly as we can to get to the bottom of it. But there are far too many unanswered questions. Why would the minister want to stop uh, that process? Um, why would SAPS want to re-enter into a contract which has been recommended to be, you know, dubious or corrupt? Uh, and why has the State Information Technology Agency not worked quickly enough to set up our own track and trace capability so that we're not dependent on another company? And at the centre of the whole uh, saga is really the, the FDA, this company in question, uh, is basically trying to sell its intellectual property to SAPS uh, for a price tag of about 650 million rand plus 120 million rand for maintenance uh, on the system. And so you're looking at almost a billion rand transaction uh, for SAPS um, to take over their system, which obviously is an incentive to develop our own. But unfortunately, it appears that we've been or that uh, certainly the state has been dragging its feet in, in uh, you know, breaking away from this monopoly and um, developing its own system. So forensic data analysis is actually holding South Africa to ransom and 
its friend Tina Jumat Peterson, an ANC politician, is trying to help them. Is that what we're looking at here? Well, I mean, I've taken note of the allegation from Mr. O'Sullivan. I don't have maybe all of the evidence in the, you know, that he has. However, last week in the committee, uh, the committee chairperson, Ms. Jumat Peterson, instructed the police to switch the system back on. Um, now, as I'm sure you know, Parliament cannot just instruct the executive or officials to do certain things. And in fact, the committee received a legal opinion yesterday regarding that instruction, which found that uh, the committee chair had overreached. Um, and so there appears to be a, 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 you know, a decent amount of panic in the ranks uh, to preserve the relationship with this company. Uh, and I think that there is sufficient uh, anecdotal evidence over the last few years which point to an unhealthy relationship between that company and the state and potentially even the ANC. All of this, the timing with all of this is very uh, much in line with the Zonda Commission evidence unfolding of corruption within the ANC and you know a growing uh, push to get people arrested and put behind bars. This system that we're talking about, with it operating so inefficiently currently, does this mean this will delay getting the corrupt and the captured behind bars? Well, um, it, I don't know if it will directly affect any of the prosecutions that may emanate from the Zonda Commission, but it will certainly delay and frustrate the prosecution of violent criminals who, as I mentioned, have been released onto our streets to torment their victims uh, and to commit the same crimes. I, I, I deal with the public, obviously, on a daily basis, and I deal with some of the most horrific stories of you know, child rapists who are released because of an inability to provide the DNA evidence, um, you know, to the prosecutors, which would obviously, you know, you know, open and shut case. Once you've got the, the right DNA and um, it points to a conviction, that's that's straightforward. Um, but these these violent criminals have been released back on the streets and continue to rape young children and women, um, and it is just horrific. The stories are devastating. It really is a sad state of affairs. And it is absolutely frustrating the criminal justice system, including the National Prosecuting Authority. Uh, and we'd like to hear, you know, the NPA a little bit more loudly on the issue, speaking out and really holding SAPs to account as well um, in the public domain, because it really is a gross miscarriage of justice what is happening at the moment. And uh, while there, all, there have always been some issues with our DNA uh, analysis capabilities, nothing like this has ever happened before. It is literally ground to a halt. In your statement, you say that thousands of violent criminals are being let loose on the streets to torment their victims and commit new crimes. Some people might think you're exaggerating. Do you have any specific stats or evidence just to add a bit of backing to that? Yeah, well, I mean, I can just, you know, again, it was an estimate. So, I mean, I, sus you know, I suspect that people may be dubious about those figures. But I can tell you for a fact that the DNA case exhibit backlog is over 200,000. So that's you know 200,000 cases that need to be prosecuted that are waiting for DNA uh, uh, analysis. Now, obviously, many of those will not point to a conviction. And so I actually think by saying thousands, I'm underestimating the extent of the chaos. So Andrew, you've called for a debate of national importance. It seems extraordinary that it's taken so long for this problem in the police service to come to the surface. So, as I mentioned, you know, since 2017, um, 
My colleague uh, Tim Browter-Seth, who's a DA member of Parliament on the Standing Committee of Public Accounts, exposed this issue with the, uh, the, the potentially corrupt relationship between the FDA and the South African Police Service. Um, that was raised then. They have failed to deal with it because SAPS has not been successful in its court applications against that company uh, in terms of pursuing the intellectual property uh, rights. And um, since 2019, when I was elected, We've been dealing with questions uh, related to the DNA issue, the DNA Oversight Board, trying to bring these issues to light. And I must say that for the better part of the last year, I've been incredibly frustrated that it hasn't captured the imagination of the public. And so we have really tried. I've released a number of statements on it, um, made debates uh, in Parliament on it. We've asked the President oral questions on it. But I'm delighted that now it seems to be gaining momentum and the people are starting to understand the extent of the chaos that has been caused by poor leadership, poor management, and, as I said, a potentially corrupt relationship with a company which now has a monopoly almost over our entire criminal justice system. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour with Jackie Cameron. That was Andrew Whitfield, Shadow Minister of Police and a member of the National Assembly for the Democratic Alliance, speaking to me, Jackie Cameron, about a scandal that has erupted around the South African Police Service computer system that stores DNA from crime scenes and involves ANC politician Tina jumat Peterson, who you'll recall pushed very hard to try to get the controversial nuclear deal with Russia approved when Jacob Zuma was president. Coming up... Bill Gross, one of the rock stars of the bond fund industry, has been busy in retirement, shorting U.S. Treasury bonds and playing chicken with day traders on Reddit. In this interview with Bloomberg editor-at-large, Eric Schatzke, the former PIMCO partner who now runs money for his charitable foundation, shares some insights on his bets and why he thinks inflation is going to head up quickly. Take a listen. You do have a right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not always right, but, um, you know, I, I, I anticipated... Uh, the possibility, at least, of, of the 10-year selling off, and it has by 30 to 35 basis points. I mean, um, you know, at this point, the CRB is up 40% over the past six to nine months. Um, you, you know, inflation itself, in terms of uh, the dollar, dollars down 10%, uh, fiscal stimulation at $2 trillion plus. Uh, we had an import price index number this morning that uh, really is 8% annualized and uh, household income is uh, going gangbusters. And so there, there's no reason to expect that inflation, at least, uh, not necessarily treasuries, but inflation, at least, uh, will be screaming higher over the next several months. And that's what some investors are anticipating. Well, they certainly are, and they'll be more interested in the term you just used, screaming higher. Commodity price inflation through the PPI feeding into what? Screaming higher means exactly what? Well, you know, a 40% rise in uh, commodities doesn't necessarily um, translate into a uh, three or a four or five percent uh, increase in terms of the CPI, but um, a decline of ten percent in the dollar uh, and in the import index, mm-hmm. index uh, which is related, it was highly influential. And um, you know, you have to know, or we all know, uh, that fiscal stimulation has uh, 
been substantial in the past. A lot of it has been saved. Some of it may be spent, and we've got $2 trillion or more to come, as well as an infrastructure uh, bill that uh, most investors are assuming will pass. And so, you know, there's significant demand um, that is, is stored up, um, power that is stored up that it can be unleashed if, uh, if consumers want to go in that direction. And I, I think to a certain extent they will. Uh, I mean, to 100%, um, that is the broad question. That's what Chairman Powell uh, tomorrow, I assume, will talk about, how much will be saved, how much will be spent. But uh, in any case, inflation, uh, you know, currently below 2% now is not going to be Below two percent in the next few months. I, I see a three to four percent number ahead of us. Bill, there is no recent history in Fed policy, certainly not since Paul Volcker, of letting inflation run hot for the sake of jobs and for the sake of growth. Do you think Jay Powell will have the stomach for it once he sees prices rising meaningfully faster than two percent a year? Well, that's a, a great question. Uh, of course, he said in the past that there's a lot to make up, that uh, because inflation has been below 2%, and in some cases below zero, um, that he can live with 2% plus inflation for a relative period of time. But that's the question that you've asked me, and that's the question that the markets are asking. How long will that be? Will it be 3, 6, 12 months? Right now, the the short end of the market, the euro dollar market, is anticipating a, a March 2022 first increase, and uh, that's something that uh, Jay Powell, I think, would deny. Uh, certainly, the dots on the dot uh, the dot plan by the Fed would uh, would belie that as well. Um, but I I, I think. Um, you know, three to six to twelve months at uh, three to four percent plus inflation uh, will give him pause in terms of his current policy. Of, co- of course, the talk in the bond market is that the Fed policymakers will be forced to tighten sooner than they're planning. Uh, and of course, if that in fact does happen, there is the potential for a taper tantrum. How real is that potential? Well, I think it is. I, I mean the. the the deficit is, uh, you know, three to four trillion dollars. Uh, the, the Fed is financing uh, perhaps um, half of that, and other central banks are financing perhaps half of that. And so it's up to the uh, the rest of us, uh, you know, the vigilantes or the hedge funds or whoever, uh, you know, to fill the gap. I I, I have a hunch that. Um, you know, what was known as Operation Twist in the late 40s after World War II and, and the Fed trying to keep interest rates down by buying tens and uh, longer bonds, that uh, Operation Twist may be in our future where the, um, the Fed is limited to, you know, perhaps a, a, a trillion or so uh, in, in terms of outright spending, but they begin to spend more on tens and twenties and the 30s in order to keep those long-term interest rates down. Uh, you know, the 10-year is influential on mortgage rates. Mortgage rates are influential on housing. And so um, I think we have Operation Twist in our future. We might even uh, have had Operation Twist in the last two weeks. I don't know that. But it <laughs> smells a little bit. It smells a little bit, Eric, because we got up to 165 or 70 
it was a panic uh, type of mode, and all of a sudden we're back down to 160. But that's just conjecture on my part. Are you still short treasuries, and if so, where on the curve? Yeah, I'm short the you know the ten year future, which is a seven year, uh, six year piece of paper. Um, I'm short the long bond to a certain extent. Um, you know, there, there's an interesting uh, thought, and uh, I'm sure you've uh, maybe even interviewed Scott Menard from Oppenheimer or not. He um, Guggenheim. Yes, Guggenheim. Sorry, um, he um, basically isn't necessarily a bear or a bull, but he suggests that um, it remains to be proven whether a bear market is in our future because um, the 10-year and the 30-year are in these long-term downtrend channels that started in 87 Mm. and 86, and the the 30-year bond at uh, 250 uh, basically is at the top of that range. And the 10-year at about two is at the top of that range. And so he basically says that until proven otherwise, until breaking those channels, we're still in this downtrend. Mm. I, I disagree with that, but it's an interesting proposition. I, I just, I, While yes. I still have time, I want to ask you about this. I, I also heard that you made a tidy sum uh, trade in GameStop in the January short squeeze. Tell me about that. Sure. Um, well, I got in too early. Um, you know, I got in with options like the, a good uh, Robin Hood trader, I guess, and uh, selling options, not buying options, selling calls. Um, you know, at around the $150, $200 level, it went to $400. Um, there's an adage by Bernard Baruch way back when that said, sell to the sleeping point. Well, I, I wasn't selling to the sleeping point, but I did manage to overcome my insecurities and hold on and um, write it all the way back down um, in in terms of uh, getting out. Um, I'm back in. Uh, I, I'm still selling uh, call options at uh, 250 and 300. The volatility is super high, Eric, and uh, that promotes an ability to uh, to make some money. If uh, you know, so, you're effectively uh, still short GameStop. Yeah, not a lot. I, I mean. Um, I mean, through the yeah, options market, clear. it's not like you've got a short position, a borrow and a short position on in the cash market. But um, well, it, well, it sort of is. If if the option um, uh, comes due, if the expiration mm. comes due, and, and you are uh, forced to short shares, but uh, you know, right now the borrowing rate on uh, shorted shares for GameStop is only one and a half percent, which indicates no real squeeze or no real pressure, and so. With volatility at 400% annualized, it's it's really, you know, you need a, du- a doubling and a doubling in order to to start to lose money. And uh, I, I think this is a perfect opportunity for option sellers, not buyers, uh, to take advantage. Same How much have with, you made on those trades so far? Um, well, I, w- I was in the hole by about $10 million, uh, but um, I'm about the same amount above ground. Now, very quickly, what else are you active in right now? What are your deepest conviction long and shorts? Well, um, about six to 12 months ago, I, I got into uh, natural gas pipeline stocks. They were very cheap. Buffett was getting into them at the same time. Um, they were yielding 13 and 14% tax deferred because they're partnerships. And, um, you know, I, I caught the ride uh, on, on energy. I didn't really forecast the current oil price, but I thought that those yields, which are, uh, again, partnership tax deferred, 
um, were extraordinary. And so that's my main uh, focus, 40% of That was bond fund industry legend Bill Gross on his recent trades. And that's all we've got time for on the Biz News Power Hour this evening. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the team at Biz News, thank you for joining us here on Fine Music Radio FM and DSTV Channel 838. You can catch up with all of the Biz News Power Hour interviews on our Spotify channel. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until next time. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.